0: Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University. And I'm joined, as usual, by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. Welcome to the show, Ken. Hey, it's great to be back, Trey. It's always fun doing the show with you, and this time, we get this week, and then just so listeners are prepared, it's kind of like we're taking over, we've got this week, we're doing the bonus show this week as we continue talking about the Constitution. I'm really excited about that, but you're going to get us back to back, right? So next week is also uh, you and me, Ken, and next week's bonus show is you and me, Ken. So it's going to be a lot of the two of us for the politics guys for the next couple of weeks. Uh, Are you as excited as I am? Yeah, we're we're taking over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, we are in polling. We are often the clear winners of the most popular politics. (laughs) It's it's an empirical truth. As a scientist, I have (laughs) to trust the data. Uh, now, as true as that may or may not be, though, what we will be taking on, and this is definitely true because we've laid it out, uh, we're going to be talking about the shortest prime minister in UK's history. We're going to be leading with that story. We're going to talk about Putin declaring martial law in the annexed regions of the Ukraine. We're going to be talking about the, uh, uh, what had happened in a bunch of the debates uh, here this past week, Ohio, Georgia, Arizona. We're also going to make some predictions for the midterm elections and see where things might be headed. Uh, If we have time, we're going to be talking about Lindsey Graham uh, being required to testify in 2020 and potentially also, as well, Iran supporting Russia uh, in its fight against Ukraine Uh, and and maybe even a few other things from there. But we'll we'll see what we can get to, but we're going to definitely get to those first four stories. Uh, But before we do that, we're going to take just a brief pause and, and we'll be there. Well, Ken, this is really a bizarre year for the United Kingdom. First, we have the tragic incidents, I mean, maybe not the unforeseen, of the death of Queen Elizabeth. But now, in a bit of political drama, uh, Thursday, current Prime Minister Liz Truss, after only 44 days, that's six weeks, has signaled her resignation as leader of the conservative party, and therefore as prime minister, giving her the dubious distinction of being the shortest serving prime minister in all of British history. Now, Most think this is the result of her retreat from her tax cut plans after the financial markets plummeted in response to them. Uh, In her words, quote, I recognize that given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the conservative party, she said standing outside Downing Street. Now, meanwhile, conservatives in polls are, not surprisingly, way down. Now, for all of the Americans listening to this show or people in other countries, just a little bit of heads up. What this means, because she's resigning, she's not going to be prime minister, but that means that the British Conservative Party has to quickly find a new leader and, as a result of that, a new prime minister. And, crazily enough, they've got to get this done by Friday of next week. So, there are several possibilities, but you'll see what you need as a result of the rules in Parliament. Uh, the House has to come up with at least 100 votes from members of Parliament to be a contender. And right now, there's not a lot of individuals that seem to be getting to that spot. Now, there are some possibilities, but weirdly, and this is where the drama continues, Ken, one of those is actually former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The two highest pollers as of today, Friday, are Boris Johnson and Rishi Rishi Sanak. It takes 100 votes to be a contender. Now, what's weird is Sanak, he was actually part of the movement to out Boris and was against the economic plans of trust. And that has alienated the Johnson wing of the party. But likewise, though, kind of like, Trump and his scandal ridden presidency uh Johnson is a scandal ridden prime minister who has angered a lot of members of his own conservative party, so what could or I think many conservatives hoped would end up being a relatively quick process it, well, you don 't want to have this process at all, of course, after forty four days uh, looks like it's going to probably be difficult and weirdly includes the former outed prime minister i mean this is like drama layer on drama layer, so Ken, thoughts? Yeah, I have a couple different kinds of thoughts about this. I've I've been following this story
1: very closely. One one aspect of it that seems to me to be probably much more significant than than what I've been reading in the coverage. Coverage is kind of focusing on what's happened in the last few weeks, but I do see Brexit as the major factor in all this. And uh, and that that happened a little while ago, but um, but but you know, Brexit really began the 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 period of chronic political instability in in great britain that uh you know we've now had um well there've been five tory prime ministers in the last seven years um which is you know not so not only is she the most short-lived uh prime minister in british history but liz truss but we've got you know this this period of instability and i think it it happens because without being uh part of the european union um Britain is basically shackled to the judgment of of bond markets, and it was really you know the, the bond markets that just said, "Well, trust is unacceptable, and then she had to go and And Britain sort of put itself in this extremely unsustainable situation um where you know they've they've damaged their ability through Brexit. To have, you know, to have trade with, with their, their closest trading partners. So that's you know, inflicted damage on their economy, which is ongoing. They have much greater uh, economic vulnerability to, to the markets. Um, they, they're facing the real, very real prospect of the dissolution of the United Kingdom if, if Scotland leaves. And all of this are sort of the direct consequences of, of Brexit that have just left England in a kind of um, state of you know, panic-inducing decline that I think has caused all this political instability. So I, I just wanted to sort of put that out there that I, th- I, I think you have to look at that when you think about why, why is this happening. But then, yeah, on the other part of what you said, you know, Johnson is probably on his way back in. Um, I, I think he can, you know, credibly present himself similar to what Trump could possibly do here um, as sort of the only person who can hold together um, all the, the diverse groups that make up the, the coalition that make up his party. Um, and so, you know, he was ousted because of scandals and also, I think, because of the the disintegrating situation that Brexit had caused. And Johnson was probably the the prime mover behind Brexit more than any other single person. Uh, but he does seem to have support for more wings of the party. And the last piece of that I'll just mention is, you know, Liz, Liz Truss, I think, comes from the, you know, the more libertarian wing of the of the British Conservative Party, and if you sort of think about those those grids, you sometimes see where you get, you know, fiscal and social, and then you've got liberal and conservative, you know. And we usually say, well, the the libertarians are the the fiscal conservatives and the social liberals, and you know, and and then you also have like the Trumpers who are the, the or the or the religious right who are the the social conservatives and the fiscal liberals, and then you have your your more traditional uh, liberals and conservatives, you know, fiscal on both or or, or, or or I'm sorry, conservative on both or liberal on both. You know, I think that that libertarian square, which I know is the square that you've oftentimes put yourself in, Trey, I feel like this is just more evidence that that's the square that has the smallest cons- constituency. And when she she moved forward, um, plans that were sort of based on that kind of agenda, you know, implementing a, a, a fairly severe for Britain fiscal conservatism um, uh, combined with a, a essential social liberalism, you know, suddenly there, there's no there's no constituency for that. And she she couldn't hang on. And it was just that much worse because it was in the midst of all these problems um, that Brexit has caused and that nobody can solve.
0: I mean, I wish I could disagree with part of that, but no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think that I think the libertarian wing is at a wane uh, around the world right now, in part because I think the ideals of liberalism writ large, which, right, classical or uh, libertarianism is, is, is one variant, is, on, is currently on the wane, right? I, I don't think that those are particularly popular positions, and I, I, I think in the past where you had a more easy alliance – between some more classical uh, or, or traditional conservatives and libertarians worked out uh, because of their overlap on fiscal policy, but I don't see that as being the case. So I, I don't think you're entirely wrong there, but I, I and I agree. But I might kind of take your argument further to make maybe an ideological case to say uh, the fact that Brexit is causing so much instability. I, I think is an example of the value of both liberalism writ large, ideologically, and the importance of the economic ties that bind countries together, i.e. kind of the, the libertarian argument uh, when it comes to international relations as it creates stability inside of countries. So I actually agree with your analysis, but I, I would take it a step further and say that this is, this is in fact a defense of liberalism, right? So if, if the kind of nationalist uh, populist position was correct, then we should see additional uh, stability and positive outcomes as we retreat and sever economic ties. But but we don't see that. Uh, instead, we see, uh, well, what we're seeing right now, which is a historic period of British instability. And I mean, you were, I think, kind of assuming this. I mean, we all know this, but something I think we're saying, you know, the United Kingdom, if anything, is known for its moderation and long-term stability, even compared to places like the United States. But as you rightfully point out, that has not been the case recently. But again, I I wouldn't make an ideological argument that that's because of this larger rejection of liberalism. I'm curious what you think about that kind of extension of your take.
1: Yeah, I agree with it. Um, Yeah, I I think, I mean, I tended to think of of the European Union project as a political project first and an economic project second. And it sounds to me like, um, you know, perhaps you're thinking more of an economic project first and a political yeah, well, project I mean, second. I mean because I think
0: historically, yeah. even, right, I mean, the EU emerges out of economic agreements, originally a coal agreement that then extends to a variety of other economic connections. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the reason you end up with the political connections you do in the EU, and for this, I actually. Turned to one of my uh, uh, colleagues, Dr. Dan Doty, uh, who kind of – this was his, this was his uh, dissertation, his argument. And, and I thought – again, he's not a libertarian by any means. Um, but uh, I agreed with him was without those underpinnings of the early economic ties, you wouldn't have had the ability to have the political will for political ties. So yeah, I do see it leading in that direction, even just historically as you look at it.
1: Well yeah so my read on that is that so the European coal and steel union was the first um beginnings of what later became the European Union but i don't think that that was entered into primarily for reasons of uh you know helping the coal and steel industries um have more free trade i i think it was really about making sure that no single country could control those war making industries so it's it's a it's a political project that um that that, that the idea is that you know um the war making industries which were the coal and steel industries you know there was this idea that if countries could dominate those industries then countries could have the material ability to to make war on other european countries and and so the the idea of putting those under common governance and having the trade barriers taken down was to make sure that every country had its share of coal and steel, and every country, and then you have the mutual deterrence effect, and then you have the the, the stronger political union. But but in any case, I don't really think we disagree. These are just disagreements in emphasis, because yeah, ultimately, yeah. The, the 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 European Union project, whether you think it was primarily an economic project or primarily a political project, it was clearly both. And and severing it um, is is you know it, it, it's it's immediately severing economic ties more and and by making trade harder and more expensive um it's it's hurting the economies of of every country in Europe and and as we see here right now where the economy is a source of uh, some political instability here um you know it, it, the the economic uh troubles that that the UK is going through which are you know they're facing all the same challenges we're facing but they're also facing these self-inflicted challenges of having cut them off from, from trade that most, they cut themselves off from trade that most of their major industries had been engaged in and just like shot their own economy in the foot that way. That's obviously, uh, you know,
0: causing these, these convulsions in, in political life there. Well, and, and to extend that, you're right. It also extends to the possibility of what happens with the United Kingdom itself when you now have these weirder, harder political borders uh, in Northern Ireland. Yeah,
1: I I don't see that. Uh, I, I don't see that the situation there is sustainable. And, uh, you know, I don't think anyone in the island of Ireland wants to, you know, have a, a, a war in terms of a hot war with fighting. Right. But uh, but but the but the situation is um, I think it's getting increasingly unsustainable for Northern Ireland to remain part of the United Kingdom. And I think there there will be, you know, trade wars on that island unless um uh, 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 unless Northern Ireland exits, and I, I think we're kind of at an inflection point now, where you know, because there always have been and still are more more Protestants in Northern Ireland than Catholics in Northern Ireland. Um, the majorities in Northern Ireland have tended to identify more with the United Kingdom than with the Republic of Ireland, and and not wanted to uh, leave. But I think that's actually starting to change, where the the, the religious affiliation for for some Northern Irelanders is is not enough of a reason anymore to want to stay in the UK, and and that um, you know, of course, Scotland, um, uh, which is also like the UK, mainly Protestant, they're actually further down the road to wanting to leave the UK, I think, than, than Northern Ireland is. So the sort of convulsions that are caused by um, uh, Brexit are extremely destabilizing uh, to to UK federalism as well. It sort of leaves you know um, most of the most of the areas that aren't
0: England. Um, really wondering why they're still in the UK instead of in the EU. Yeah, now, and to be clear, you know, we've talked about this, that word federalism there is not going to apply quite the same way as you might think in the United States, but that's as an aside. But kind of the long-term outlook here, right? I mean, one possibility is the United Kingdom recently moved from having uh, calling elections with a maximum of five years to having a fixed election cycle that could, under unusual circumstances, be called more early. Uh, and and this plays out about the same time you have the movement to want to begin in Brexit, uh, Brexit, at least its implementation, so, do you think that the Tories? Do you think the Conservative Party holds out for the five-year tenure, given that they're they're down in the polls, or do you think that if we have an inability to kind of coalesce around a prime minister, we there ends up being a, a, an election?
1: Yeah, it's hard to predict where that's headed. I mean, I think you explained it just right again. But the 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 Tories have very strong incentives not to hold an early election because they will lose an early election. Their, their approval rating is down to 14% right now. And they, they have the right to hang on until 2025 without having an election. Um, and if they have an election, they'll probably lose their majority. So I, I think they have strong incentives not to have an election. But on the other hand, you know they do have these internal uh uh factional uh, uh disputes and schisms which you talked about earlier and uh it is kind of playing out um you know with Sunak and uh and maybe Johnson uh appearing as the the front runners and there's one or two other uh names that have been batted around for possible new prime minister but if none of them can secure a majority within the Tories then they won't be able to appoint a prime minister. And that would be one of those rare situations where they might have to have an early election because there is gonna to have to have to be a vote of the parliament. And in the vote of the parliament, if, if there's no majority to appoint a prime minister, if no, if no coalition can be formed, then there has to be an er- early election. So it really depends if the Tories can settle their internal differences um, or not. And at this juncture, even though we're only a week away, I, I don't have a prediction about
0: that. No, it's 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 a difficult one to do, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that probably, you know it, I, I think it's a little better than a coin toss that you, that they end up some minor faction ends up settling and they they select a particular new PM. But you know, I, I put it at just slightly better than a coin coin toss. Yet remember, though, that if, if only I think it would only take
1: about 15 or 20 percent of the Tories to um, if, if, if 15 or 20 percent of the Tory members of parliament didn't accept that deal, they could vote uh, on the same side as the other parties and not it. to accept the new prime minister. And then that would that would defeat the, the large, much, much larger majority of their own party.
0: No, it's true, and that, and that again. That's why I say I, I mean I would put it barely better than a coin flip. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, because you, there's not a lot of margin for error there. But but simultaneously, and this is this is an example of where you know we just have to kind of admit our ignorance. Maybe if I was better able to count what those votes would look like in the way that we might do in the Senate or the House, I might have a better prediction mechanism. But I'm not even sure there's anybody who studies. Uh, uh, British politics who could probably give you a much better answer. But I want to be cautious on that because, again, I, I don't know all of those individual MPs enough to really give you an answer. But that's another thing that makes it hard, right? Because in British in, in British politics, the individual MPs don't have a lot of independence. So it's not as if you're kind of studying them all the time because generally you're just talking about party line votes. That's what happens in parliamentary systems. Because uh, otherwise you have government failing if you can't pass your your laws. So it's, it's very different than the American system where individual members of Congress have a ton of, of independence. And therefore, we look and, and think about how they might vote or behave in that body all the time. So this is, it's also unusual on that front because you have to kind of figure out, well, how would these individual MPs vote? And that's not normally something you would do analyzing the system.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm looking at the New York Times did have an article where they they listed a bunch of the names of, of possible contenders and summarized who they were. And it looks to me, and these are, as you're saying, these are people I was not personally very familiar with, but a couple, you know, with clearly Johnson and Senac being the front runners, the, the, the sort of dark horses who are still in the race, um, one would be Penny Mordaunt who was, um, uh, she's a 50-year-old woman, she was uh, briefly the leader of the Tories in the House of Commons, Uh, she does serve in the Royal Navy Reserve, and she was even British Defense Secretary for two and a half months in 2019. And she seems to be, you know, one of the contenders. Another one who also comes from a a, um, defense background is the current Defense Secretary, uh, Ben Wallace. Um, who was a, a career military person until he entered uh politics and um uh he um you know has been a supporter of, of of trust um which may taint him a little bit now if he's associated with her policies and he was a big opponent of of brexit um the The other one is uh Suella Braverman, who was the home secretary and she's a bit younger uh, she's only about forty uh but she um uh has been um kind of a leading uh, advocate of, of Britain's uh, anti-immigrant movement. And so she has certainly some support from that that base. So those, I think, are other people who are in it. But, um, you know, like you, I think I probably would think it's it, the real the, the question for about those candidates is who are they going to be willing to form a coalition with? You know, is it going to be with Sunak or is it going to be with Johnson? Because I just yeah. think those those are the two that have a really bona fide chance.
0: No, I agree. I agree. Well, why don't we continue to keep our focus a little weirdly overseas for just a moment and then turn the second half of the show over uh, to our more traditional American issues and talk about a development in uh, the, the, the Russian conflict with Ukraine. Now, I'm going to take just two seconds here to mention something because this comes up on on social media a lot. I know that I have a habit of referring to uh, Ukraine as the Ukraine, right? (laughs) And uh, that is nothing more than a habit on my part. It is not a political commentary on my part. I I, I mean, again, I mean, if I was, I wouldn't care. I'd be honest about it. But I have no secret Russian uh, uh, (laughs) – position (laughs) uh and and i don't mean anything ideological about that so as we're talking about this if i happen to slip up i'm gonna work hard and and i have been but obviously i i have not gotten that perfectly if i say the ukraine as opposed to the uh Ukraine, see right there. I was even even as I'm thinking yeah. about it. Uh, I, I don't mean anything political by that. Uh, just to, just to be clear on that front, and and to try to clear up any confusion. My apologies. That I recognize that that can seem that way, but. You know, uh, try growing up in the 80s and then just getting that out of your head, right? That's really what that is. Um, so anyway, be that as it, uh, as it is. Uh, this Wednesday, Ken, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia would be imposing martial law in the four regions in Ukraine that he had seized. Now, this comes in the wake of huge setbacks in these regions for the Russian military. As a matter of fact, the last time we talked, I had even brought up, I thought that they were going to enter into these territories rather quickly, and sure enough, they did. Uh, So it's not as even as if the Russian military controls all of these territories anymore. As a matter of fact, on Wednesday, Putin signed some wartime measures for the regions bordering Ukraine, which includes Crimea. Now, simultaneously and this is something uh, that uh, that we saw on uh, 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 Thursday, was that the White House has claimed it has evidence that Iranian troops are, quote, directly engaged on the ground, in uh, end quote, in Crimea, and being used to help Russian drone attacks on Ukraine. The British has said that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard members are assisting Russian forces specifically with the use of drones. And we've seen this week That the uh, Russians have been using drones to target uh, uh, civilian infrastructure. Biden, as a result, and the White House is looking at new sanctions for Iran. Now, Iran, this kind of continues. Iran has been under uh, has had a significant amount of unrest in the wake of the death of 22-year-old Masha Amini, who died in Iranian custody for not covering her head with a hijab, which is required by law in Iran. Now the Biden administration basically says there's not much left to discuss or to negotiate. In in, in the words of the uh, 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 the words of the White House, quote, are not focused on the dip- we are not focused on diplomacy at this point. What we are focused on is making sure that we're holding the regime accountable." End quote. So Ken. What do you think about the most recent escalation from Putin, both in terms of military distance strategy, which seems to be a little bit desperate, simultaneously with martial law in areas that he doesn't control, and now this uh, relationship between Russia and Iran in kind of a, uh, almost an advisor capacity?
1: yeah advising and and even uh training apparently to yeah. um yeah well i guess i'm going to go ahead and point a finger of blame at the republicans in congress in the united states for both of these developments because first of all i, I don't think iran would have had as much reason to want to come in uh on on and help the russians here um if we had better relationships with iran than than we have and we we were working towards that under the iran nuclear deal that President Obama um, negotiated and and implemented um, and then um, you know Trump came in and tore that up and and the Republicans in Congress made it very, very difficult for 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 Biden to normalize relations with Iran when he came back so it it doesn't surprise me that you know Iran, which is already under tremendous amount of sanctions from us doesn't doesn't see a lot to lose. By risking coming even under a few more sanctions from us, and maybe sees a, a lot to gain from uh, um, strengthening uh, American enemies. Now, you know, we're we're really the ones more than them who, um, you know, who pulled back from the 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 process of trying to normalize relations, which was underway a decade ago. And then also with Putin here, I mean, McCarthy's been going around saying on the campaign trail that if the uh, uh, Republicans get control of the Congress. Um, then, first thing in January, we're not going to be helping uh Ukraine as much as we have been, so I think you know with those kind of incentives um you know Putin's losing on the battlefield, but he's thinking, well, if I double down, you know I really only have to you know I really only have like four months where i four or five months where I have to keep well now only three months where I just have to keep hanging in there um and then the the cavalry will come the republican congress will will make sure that the united states um stops supporting Ukraine and then when that happens uh you know everything's going to get much easier for Russia. So uh, to me these are uh, you know re- reflections of um American political developments and their their impacts in Tehran and in Moscow.
0: I agree in half. Uh so I I do think that it's irresponsible for McCarthy to be running around and effectively uh saying look we we should turn a blind eye to what's happening with Russia. Where I where and 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 that undoubtedly is going to be part of what anybody is making that connection for. Now between Russia and Iran, though, one of the things that I struggle with, right? We were talking about this in terms of uh, the United Kingdom uh, with the rest of uh, the European Union, but I do actually have sympathy. One of the one of the problems that I've had with with democratic foreign policy is is that they don't have a consistent idea for, okay, when do we negotiate with bad guys and when do we not? And, and I, I understood some of the objections with Iran uh, and the, the increasing of the normalized relations with them since it was clear and, and apparent that they were, were attempting to uh, go around those. Now, I probably wouldn't have torn it up in the way that Trump did. As a matter of fact, you know, the two of us had talked about this on the show, but nevertheless, this idea that we're going to be able to, to, to have normalized relations, it is fascinating how which parties think at which times we're going to be able to have normalized relations with which particular authoritarian, repressive governments, uh, and, and then either side blaming the other for you know picking the wrong authoritarians <laughs> to, to hang out with. I you know yeah of course Iran is going to be closer to Russia as a result of the fact that it doesn't want to be part of sanctions but I'm not sure if that's a really great answer for dealing uh, uh, with the Iranian with with a repressive government what, what would you say that I'm, I'm curious what your what your response to that is because again I agree with you well, on think, the on the on the Republican yeah. with McCarthy spot but the other side. of
1: so so i th- i think your 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 overall critique is fair and and you know i i don't quibble with it but but I think as applied to the specifics of iran um i I think that the there was um an opening there at this point in time there was movement you know in 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 good directions in terms of um you know iran it, 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 you know we're we're seeing that the Iranian population is more open. To um you know, wanting to change the form of government that they have, wanting to be more involved with the west, you you described you know some, some incidents um this week where you know of course there were there were clashes between the the government and, and the and the citizenry, but that related to the idea that the citizenry was seeking more of an opening and I think with encouragement, it seemed like a good time for strategic intervention, and also I think the way that um Obama, when he was still president, was managing that deal. There, there was um, a lot of monitoring for for compliance, and there were consequences for non-compliance. But then, uh, when Trump came in, you know, instead of saying, "Well, here's our expectations of what we want from Iran, and you know, we will we will uh, work towards normalization as long as they're meeting our benchmarks," um, he just said, "It doesn't matter to us whether they meet our benchmarks or not. We're going to take all the sanctions against them we possibly can," and that that kind of approach just sort of blows, you know, any influence that we could have had on, on how things develop in Iran going forward.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, again, I don't, I don't disagree, especially with the specifics of how the Trump administration handled uh, its inheritance from uh, the Obama administration, right? Especially given that the Trump administration was more than willing to have farcical talks with uh, North Korea, for example. Uh, you know, so in, in one case we're gonna we're gonna deal with uh, a repressive regime, and another case we're not going to deal with a repressive regime. So, so no, I I don't think there's there's much space to argue that the Trump administration had the had the correct answer. I, I, again, to go back to I think um, the more at least thoughtful position of the Obama administration, I recognize the idea we want to attempt to have soft versions of influence uh, to meet certain benchmarks. But again, I I often am dubious of those primarily because it doesn't appear to me that there's really any – really ways of determining if those benchmarks are met. But that's a different question, of course, than whether or not uh, uh, the Trump response to it was appropriate. And, and I recognize that, that that's a distinction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would, I would just – just before we leave the topic, if you look back to uh, an analogy from, from 20 years ago – you know, we, we when we when we had the Iraq War, um, you know, then Saddam Hussein was a you know bad dictator in Iraq, but also you know the UN had put him under sanctions uh, to not allow him to develop um, weapons of mass destruction, and there was monitoring going on, and in fact he wasn't developing weapons of mass destruction. He was in compliance with the demands that the that the UN had put on him, including all the demands for inspections and things like that. And just for really domestic political reasons, um, you know, George W. Bush decided he wanted to be a war president. He wanted to reshape the, the Middle East. And he he tore up those kind of agreements and started a war. Um, and, and you know, part of that was, you know, I think echoed in what happened now that, that you know, there may be domestic uh, political reasons that, you know, some American presidents want to be seen as kind of bellicose, tough guys. Um, and they want to find some boogeyman that they can beat up on, whether whether it's Saddam Hussein or whether it's the Ayatollah in Iran. But it, it's very counterproductive, you know, to do that if if you've got ways that um, you know through soft power you can actually be pushing them in a good direction, and through these exercises of vilification, you just throw them, you know, that their only option is to to throw their lot in with our with our other enemies. And I and so I do think that's you know what we're seeing in um, uh, in in Crimea and Russia today. Uh, With Iranians, there does have, um, you know, it it has historical uh, antecedents.
0: I guess my last thought there on that kind of broader question is, is that just simply empirically, I don't think that soft power moves with authoritarian regimes specifically have as much success as we often uh, think they do, uh, you know, uh, just kind of intuitively, uh, and, and as a result, and, and that's, I think, a difficult position because I, I, in general, I think deepening connections be co- between countries is a positive thing, but that only seemingly works empirically on the ground when you have countries that have some degree of liberty, some degree of openness, some degree uh, of po- uh, uh, popular connection. It doesn't appear to me, again, just historically, when you look at the data, that those soft power tools do as much as I, oftentimes, and and this is a critique of Democrats, I think Democrats overestimate the amount of influence soft power has specifically to authoritarian uh, regimes dictatorial regimes uh, than what we actually see in the social sciences. Not to say that I want to uh, start a war, everybody's an authoritarian regime, but just being honest about the fact that, I, you know, that doesn't often end up moving or changing policy in many ways in that particular circumstance. That'd be my only slight pushback, well, I suppose.
1: Yeah, except I, I think I would get, that is exactly why I gave the example of, of Saddam Hussein. Right. I mean, it, it was having impact on him. He was not developing weapons of mass destruction. You know, maybe he maybe he wanted some of his regional neighbors to think that he was. And so he was having some mixed messaging there. But but it, it was always found by the U.N. inspectors that he he wasn't he was complying and and then after the US army invaded and and you know cuz i guess we supposedly didn't believe the UN inspectors you know the, the US army found the, the exact same conclusions that the UN inspectors had been finding so that there was no program to develop weapons of mass des- destruction so i think i think that was just an example where the international sanctions regime was actually working it was doing exactly what it was supposed to do and i would i would venture the hypothesis although we can't test it that if we were still in our our nuclear deal with I, Iran right now and and if um we had lifted some trade sanctions on them mm-hmm. that then they were at risk of having reimposed on them um and if the and if we were moving slowly towards normalization of relations with them and they were able to start selling us oil and things like that that you know they they would have had a lot of a lot more to think about before they decided to 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 start um training some of uh, uh, Putin's military for this this war in the Ukraine, they would have had a lot more to lose.
0: Well, as a counterpoint, I mean, we do have highly normalized relations with Saudi Arabia, for example. Uh, and, and despite those normalized relations, uh, the Saudis have helped and worked with Russians and gone specifically against uh, Biden requests uh, for oil increases and changes. So I mean I hear and I, I mean, obviously neither one of us can can get at the counter uh, point, but you know we do have a separate case that we could look at Saudi Arabia where we do have much more normalized relations, but not really any additional controls, soft power effects, or them not being willing to side against the United States. So what would you take that as being a potential counterexample even though since we can't look at the counterexample of what might have happened with Iran?
1: Well, I the, I think the difference there and I I certainly agree that it's a it's a good counterexample, but I think the difference is Saudi Arabia for better or worse has has been able to, you know, have extremely normal relations with one American political party and it sees itself as a player Inside American politics, so when 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 Saudi Arabia supports policies that that I might see as anti-American, like deciding to cut oil production and raise prices right now to put the squeeze on America at this particular time. Um, I, I think they perceive that as being pro-American because it's actually helping the Republicans, and and it may influence the the midterm elections. Um, you know, which we're going to get to a little later in show. the show. the 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 price of energy going up, up, up is having an influence on these elections, and I and I think the the Saudis are extremely aligned with the Republican Party in America, and sometimes hurting America helps the Republican Party. Um, And I think the Saudis, you know, that that, that's, you know, that's where they that's where they are. Um, So I think that's an unusual case. Whereas if you're looking at um, other kinds of, of, uh, you know, authoritarian dictatorships, I don't think they get as involved in the um, uh, partisan politics in the United States as what the Saudis are doing.
0: I guess my last – and then we really have to move on because we're, we're going to go long in these first two segments – is just that I think that authoritarian regimes, because of the nature of what they're doing, are always going to attempt – To play those kinds of party debates. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's inherent in the ideological critiques between democracy and authoritarianism, right? So, authoritarians basically argue that democratic institutions are unstable, and therefore, the way that you attack democratic institutions is is you uh, pick sides. Uh, or you attempt to always uh, fight for the party that's out of power, so that you have certain kinds of instabilities. I mean, I mean that goes all the way back to just political theorists. Between, uh, I, I know it's weird, uh, you know, on this show, this might be something they but there's there are there are actually pro-authoritarian political theorists, right? And you know, anti-democratic. Uh, I, I'm thinking, for example, of the classic, the crisis of parliamentary democracy. Um, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm blanking on who writes that book though. Can we? Um, I don't, I don't. I don't know. I believe.
1: Ah. I believe it. I don't. I can't name the person whose theory ah. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. Saudi Arabia is not the only country like that, of course, because Russia's like that too. Russia's another country that's intervening, you know, on, on behalf of the Republicans in American politics. But uh, I just don't. Think, I don't that think it has anything to do with
0: them being Republicans. I think it has to do with the ideological idea that you try to blow up elections in any particular country when you're authoritarian regime. The weakness of a democracy is its elections, according to authoritarianism. Yeah.
1: Right, I yeah, I, I do agree with that, but I just don't think that's how all of these countries operated. So I don't really think that's what Iran was ever doing. I don't think that's what Saddam Hussein's Iraq was ever doing. You know, I think they they maybe just didn't have the strength or the sophistication or or even the the, the concern um to to try to um you know destroy America through its electoral system. But yeah, I, I think that's you know that's what that's what the Saudis are doing, although they probably don't think of it as destroying America. They probably think of it as strengthening America by helping their friends the Republicans. Um, I think in the in the Russian case, they they do think of their interference as, as destroying America, and they they think of Trump as the, the greatest agent of chaos to destroy America that they they ever uh, were lucky enough to stumble across. But but I think smaller totalitarian countries um are, are and smaller and less sophisticated totalitarian countries are are less likely to um, really be having sophisticated programs to interfere with American elections. And I think, you know, that's I would put Iran and Iraq in, in those kind of buckets. And I, I don't see any evidence that they ever
0: tried anything like that. Well, I'm going to I'm going to cut us both short there uh, and we're going to take a brief uh, pause and we'll be back in just a moment. OK, so, Ken, we have spent half of a show chatting about foreign policy, other countries. It's about time we headed back to the United States got national with it or something, I don't know, uh, and, and took on some of the things happening this week in the United States. There's a lot of things. And one of those big items is we've had a bunch of debates around the country at big levels and small levels. Even here in Oklahoma City, uh, we had our one and only debate uh, between uh, Kevin Stitt and Joy Hoffmeister, which is uh, shaping up to be an absolutely interesting Uh, uh, case to see what's going on here for the governor of Oklahoma. But let's look a little bit bigger than than some of those, uh, because we have a lot of debates around the country, including in your backyard, Ken, in Ohio, but also in Georgia and Arizona. And so I thought we might look around the country at these debates, see what we thought about some of those, and then check in uh, as kind of a related story into some of our predictions for November, since we're closing in on about three weeks uh, uh until elections so right now uh you know well, well so for example taking a look at what we got going on right now uh we see this past week that in both debates like for example walker man He's getting a lot of credit for the debate, and he seems to be getting a bump in the poll for that in Georgia. And that seems to be a possibility across the board is that Democrat, or Excuse me, Republicans did a lot better uh, uh, debating, I think, than they were going to get uh, me or anybody else was going to give them credit for doing. And, and, and we're seeing some of those poll bumps. That might not be true in Ohio, though. That was a little bit different. So what do you think about the Walker debate? What do you think about the J.D. Vance debate in Ohio and Georgia? Let's start there.
1: Yeah. Well, first, let me start by admitting, um, although I watched uh, both of the two debates between uh, Ryan and Vance here in Ohio, um, and in fact, I watched a couple of debates between um, Shabbat and Landsman, who are the the contenders for the House seat in Cincinnati, which is one of the country's. Closest races right now. Um, I didn't actually watch the, the the debates from other states. I did read news coverage of them. You know, I know all about uh, Herschel Walker's stunt of trying to pull out a, a badge and that kind of thing. Um, well, that actually happened I, before I to, the debate.
0: That happened before the debate. The debate. Before, yeah.
1: I thought that happened during the debate. That he pulled out a badge during a debate.
0: Did he do that too? He he had actually that claim came out before the debate. But yeah, no, he because. Uh, well, we can we can talk more. But anyway, continue, continue.
1: Yeah, I thought he got disciplined by the moderator for because they he broke the rule against oh. using props during <laughs> during the debate. But the, uh, um, the 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 yeah, the the bottom line in terms of the polls impact, of course, you're right. I mean, it's the polls have been tightening. Um, that's been happening, um, you know, concurrently with when all these debates have been happening. Um, so you can't, you know, rule out the idea that the debates are are helping the Republicans. And and i think you can rule out the idea that the debates are helping the the democrats because they, the you know the, the the polls keep moving in republican directions right now um there may be other factors that are bigger factors in that the, you know the the democratic candidates by and large had been outraising and outspending the republicans through most of of this this year um, but then these these huge amounts of dark money are starting to come in now on the Republican side, so even though um I think Democrats are continuing to outraise Republicans um in these final three weeks, the republicans are are starting to very heavily outspend Democrats or at least spending on republicans is is heavily outspending um uh spending on Democrats so that I think you you can't separate that when you think about well why are the polls moving this direction, and also at the same time, of course, as we just talked about the the Saudis have decided to do their best to keep gas prices high here. And and Biden has, you know, continued the support for Ukraine, which has had a, a, a similar impact on uh, nat- uh, natural gas prices here. So I think a lot of Americans are, um, you know, worried about inflation, worried about the economy. And and so, so the longer the things go on, the, the more people get concerned. And And you know, so the debates are are one factor among others. But I, you know, I made some pretty bold predictions a few months ago, as you know, that the Democrats were going to have a cakewalk, and I will have to eat my words now because there's there's no cakewalks here. But um, the debates. I guess the one other thing I'll I'll address the Ohio one more than the others because I did watch. There were two debates between Vance and and uh, Ryan. Um, Neither of them were televised here in Cincinnati. They both took place in Northern Ohio, um, and they both took place on. Uh, local TV stations with right wing ownership, and that was the only reason that um, Vance was willing. Or that's the only platform that Vance was willing to debate in. Um, one of those local TV stations had a, a a network of local TV stations in Northern Ohio, and one in Wheeling, and they uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia, and they so they had the the net their own network televising it, but they didn't have a station in Cincinnati, and then. The other one was only a Youngstown station that had no network and it only aired there. But again, both were streamed through the web by those stations. Okay, live, I was, so was going to ask you about them. that
0: because weirdly here in Oklahoma, that was the same for the gubernatorial debate. Uh, there, Zero uh, television stations uh, broadcast the debate. It was only an all live streamed, which was a first in Oklahoma history. So that, that's in, I didn't know yeah. that about Ohio. So that's I wonder if there's a, a a trend even outside of the the political nature of it of that kind of well it's going to stream and it, anyway continue continue yeah yeah well that
1: is a, yeah I mean I think right because in the past they would have been televised in oh, every yeah. media market in Ohio yeah but this time there there was no no local television station in Cincinnati that televised these debates but but they streamed from the 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 local television stations in the different Ohio cities that were um, that, that aired them so one was in Akron and one was in Youngstown and the one in Akron you know as i say that owner actually owned half a dozen stations so that so that the, the it it aired on the stations in the cities that that owner owned uh but um yeah i i i you know i have to concede uh, you know although i'm definitely voting for Ryan um but i i think Vance came off a little bit more uh better debater really i you know he he is i think quicker on his feet He's more agile and and flexible. You know, he's, um, you know, although, of course, you know, Ryan's been in Congress for 20 years. But I think um, Vance, you know, who hasn't been around as long and hasn't been in Congress, uh, he does do quite a lot of public speaking. He's always on book tours and things like that. And he, um, you know, he seemed to me to um, anticipate better some of the things that Ryan was going to say and you know have you know quick comebacks that sounded you know fairly natural um i think uh ryan once or twice th- that i observed kind of overplayed his cards a little bit so you know Ry- ryan very much wanted to pound on the meme that um vance you know had spent you know part of his career uh in san francisco uh working as a venture capitalist and basically investing in companies that were moving jobs to china um, uh, long, you know, long before uh, Vance re- reinvented himself as a guy who's against moving jobs to China, and this was the talking point that Ryan wanted to get back to again and again. But it, at some point, like I think Vance, who was ready for that, says, "Well, you know, why don't you name one of those companies? What's one company that I ever invested in that moved jobs to China, and what jobs did it move to China?"
0: And yeah, and Ryan
1: didn't did, didn't have that information at his fingertips, right? It made him look, it look like a fool. Like, it
0: made him look like an he absolute like a fool. fool. Yeah.
1: Yeah, if Ryan's going to make that allegation, which probably he could have, he probably, I believe it was a valid accusation, but he he made it and he couldn't back it up. And, and that kind of thing, you know, I think um, wasn't good. And uh, um, similarly, I think he, um, you know, Vance in other ways, I think was a little bit, um, you know, I would say on the dishonest side, but sort of got away with it. Um, Vance was, um, you know, repudiating positions that he'd taken previously. About both January sixth and about uh, abortion, um, you know, where Vance's positions on January sixth were that you know it wasn't really an insurrection, and his his position on abortion is that there shouldn't even be um, uh, um, exceptions for 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 rape or incest, and you know he had said all those things before, but he not only you know walked back from them, which you know he's certainly allowed to do, but he he denied ever saying all those things before, you know, falsely, and and I think that um, you know. Ryan at least was able to say, you know, you're on tape, you're on tape saying this stuff. But um, it's still I think it I think, you know, Vance kind of skated, skated out of the moment that way. And uh, um, so I, I, I it's hard for me to see that that debate pushed any balls forward for Ryan. I, I think it's still a close race. Um, you know, most of the polls are have Vance ahead, but they mostly have it within the margin of error. Um, so I think it is still a close race. But I I don't know that there's too many undecided voters out there who watch that debate and then decided to vote for uh, for, for, for Ryan, um, there may be one or two who watched it and decided to vote for Vance. And that would kind of be my take on that. And uh, I, I feel like that, you know, that basic contour that, you know, there wasn't much to change the minds of undecided voters in these debates, um, and particularly to change their minds in favor of voting for Democrats, um, that, that from the news coverage I read of the other debates, that seems to me to be the 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 story in, in, in several of the, the, the battleground states.
0: One, I think another problem, when we take a look at say Georgia and Herschel Walker, right? I think this demonstrates one of the problems that Democrats have. And that is they have a tendency. Now, I, I would say in the post daily show era, the Democrats say, well, look, every Republican candidate is an idiot. And, you know, Walker has been pegged as an idiot. Now, he may may be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but there's a difference between you know that and being just an outright bumbling fool. And, and I think the problem is is that you use that kind of language and you use that in and that's the way you kind of set things up, uh, uh, both uh, in funny ways and or in serious ways. In this case, both. And what you do is is you effectively lower the expectations so that an average human being who can just easily step over those expectations. You know, looks particularly brilliant. I I couldn't I I will never figure out why Democrats think it's a great plan to just outright denigrate uh, Republican candidates as being dummies. When obviously, clearly, although they might not agree with uh, uh, Democrats, or again, might not even be the sharpest knife in the drawer, isn't a complete outright idiot. It, it's a terrible, terrible strategy. Forget even what you think about it morally or another way. It's a terrible strategy. And I think Walker, in a similar way, looks really good. Like, so for example, uh, you know, uh, uh, Warnick uh, says, look, there's not enough room. Which is always a funny one for me coming from – I don't think it's a great uh, uh, setup for Democrats anyway to say, well, there's not enough room for government. And I always think, well, is that really all your old position all the time? But I'll set that aside for a second and just say you know, there's not enough room for government uh, in, in, the, in the doctor's room – you know, in, in, the, in the exam room between a doctor and a patient who's a woman. And Walker has this phenomenal comeback. He says, well, yeah, you're forgetting somebody. You're, forget, you're forgetting the baby in the room. There's three people in the room. And, and I think that was an example of where, you know, Walker gets underestimated and that makes the Democrats job that much harder, right? It would have been that much easier to have a better debate against Walker had you not been hammering him as somebody who didn't know his own last name. Uh, so what, what, what do you think? I mean, I I have often thought that that's just a terrible position, but, and I think that, you know, going way back when, Democrats saw this like, "Oh, we will just them all as being idiots, and th- this will win us elections." What do you think?
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that the, the your critique um, is correct that it's it's not politically beneficial to peg your opponent as an idiot, um, and and wasn't politically beneficial for Democrats to try to do that to to Walker. I don't know that that applies to a lot of these other races, though. I don't I don't think anybody ever said that the problem with J.D. Vance is that he's an idiot. I mean, he's, he's a Yale yeah, no, law school graduate. No, I was using he's that's best true, that. since you were focusing on that. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know how, how widespread that is. I mean, I, I probably think almost everybody in Ohio, no matter who they're going to vote for in the Senate race, probably figures Vance has a higher IQ than, than Ryan, and there's not a lot of, I mean, I think that, and there, there's not, you know, but I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna vote for Ryan anyhow, right? I, 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 I don't think the, 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 the critique of, of Vance is that he's an idiot. Um, now, Walker, you know, I think it's tempting for Democrats to, to, to fall into that trap because Walker is an idiot, you know, and so it's kind of hard not to call him that, but I, I also agree with you that he's, um,
0: it's not a politically beneficial thing to do. Uh, even 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 if it's true. Now, here's another bit. So I've been looking at the polling data by state, uh, you know, because like we noted, it's not just the debates. And so here as we start to move into a minute into predictions. It's worth thinking about. But when you look at these state by state breakdowns uh, just this past week, so yesterday, the weekly polling data from CBS News on uh, in this case, we're taking a look at Nevada, which is a really important state for Democrats. You know, things aren't looking good. Why might that be the case? Well, as you mentioned earlier, it's not just debates, right? That might not even be the biggest uh, uh, indicator. But when you take a look at what voters are talking about as being their most important issues, the top four in Nevada right now, the only things that crack over 60%, 84% the economy, 82% inflation, 69% crime, fascinating, 60% immigration and if you dig into that although they don't put that on their graphic specifically what they're talking about is too much immigration then if you kind of dip under that to the next top issues that don't crack the 60 at 58 and 56 it's election issues and heads up that election issue means stronger election uh, 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 restrictions and then gun policy at 56 looser gun policy so although CBS wasn't, you I mean, when you look at the questions and where people are answering, that's where it is. Man, I mean, I mean that's a terrible slate of six issues for any Democrat uh, 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 running, even if you were to take out, like, the economy. You know. so, so, I mean, the other possibility here, and this is something you kind of look at, is to say, well, it's not always about how people are running. It's about which issues are particularly salient. So uh, voters who are not already partisan ID, meaning they're going to vote on the basis of partisan ID, what generally makes them vote for one candidate over the other has very little potentially to do with being persuaded and a lot to do with being primed. That means saying, OK, well, here are my, my prime issues right now. Which candidate aligns with those particular issues? And so if you take a look at the priming framework in political science, in nevada in georgia and in ohio right now especially again right there i'm giving the example from nevada you know that doesn't look particularly good for democrats so what do you think about on those on those issue fronts on that priming front ken
1: yeah well i i the the gun policy thing that you said i I actually wasn't sure why you thought that the, the 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 people who care about gun issues are uh in favor of um Gun gun owner rights. I, I think there's a lot of people who are concerned about gun issues who want
0: more gun control. Um, oh, I just so meant, I wasn't in that quite particular sure poll when you looked at their questions and the way they were asking it. I don't mean all the but, way but across the, the board.
1: Because yeah. on that one, the question was just whether that's an issue you care about, right? It wasn't about which side of that issue you're on. I'd have to pop that back up.
0: I don't have that right in front of me, so I, I will run with it, Ken, yeah. run with it.
1: I, yeah, I, I would actually interpret the if if there's a statistic that shows a lot of people say they're concerned about gun issues, I would think the majority of them would be voting um, that, that that would benefit the Democrats, that the, the, what they're saying is they want more regulation of guns. And so I think that's a good issue for the. Democrats. The the other ones, though, so I I agree with your interpretations of what it probably meant. Um, the uh, you know the 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 latest two poll. I just looked on the Real Clear Politics, where they the the page where they summarize all recent polls. And in Nevada, the two most recent polls are a CBS poll and a USA Today poll. Um, and the the CBS poll has um, the Republican um, uh, Laxalt uh, uh, up by one point, Anytime. and the USA Today poll. Yeah, tied, right. And and I would say even more tied because the USA Today poll that's a few days older um, has the, the Democrat uh, Cortez Mastro um, up by two. So, you know, you could look at that as both are very close. Both are within the margin of error. One falls on one side, one falls on the other side. You know, if you want to look at the fact that there's a few days between them and that the more recent one is the one that favors the Republican, maybe, you know, maybe that's not a, a great trend for the Democrats, but it's um, still, these are super close. You know, there's, the the polling there shows Nevada now as a toss-up state that itself is not good for the Dems because uh, you know a, a month or two ago it would have been a leaning dem state and now it's not um and that's that's true in some other in some other states as well um so it's uh you know i i don't like the direction that these recent trends are going i certainly think the that uh, a number of states where the dems had seemed safe enough that i didn't think that we'd have close races have turned into races that are too close to call. You know, here in Ohio, you know, I guess it was always gonna be a long shot for Ryan and I think it's still gonna be a long shot for Ryan. Um, Vance has a lot of wind at his back, although I, I don't think it's completely out of reach for Ryan. Uh, but, um, and you, you've got close races now in, in Wisconsin, which I had had very high hopes that Barnes was gonna be able to to win. And, uh, um, and, and Pennsylvania's tightening, although, I believe even the ailing Fetterman will hang on in in Pennsylvania. But he he was more than 10 points ahead for a long time. It wasn't even going to be a race. And that's not that's not the story anymore over there. So, yeah, things are moving. And I I guess I see to me, as I said earlier, I I don't see the main driver of that being the debate. I I do see the main driver of that being um, that, you know, as 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 the campaign starts shaking her out out around, activating or motivating uh, voters along the lines of particular issues they care about, just as you were talking about. I think the, the, the infusion of, um, of dark money at the last minute in favor of Republicans is really helping them focus those messages. So if they want to say the, to the voters, you know, the issue is inflation or the issue is, is crime, and there, there are voters who respond to those messages, um, the, the Republicans right now have the means to really pound those messages with a massive amount of uh, uh, multi-pronged media campaigns, and they're, they're reaching people, and, 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 and it's, it's effective. So that's, that's kind of my read on what's happening right now.
0: Let's continue to talk, and kind of in this, it's another story sort of in a way, but it's an extension of this, which is our predictions for the midterms, and, you know, on on the one hand, I think one of the things to keep in mind when you're making these kinds of predictions is, and this was, you know, when we had had this conversation and you had made your, your bold claims, I had been a little bit more cautious because I said, don't forget the structural factors. And I, I think sometimes it's easy as we get closer to an election, as we see the structural factors play, and that is the party out of power with the president in office generally is facing major headwinds every single time. And so sometimes it's easy to miss the fact that that's, that's always going to be the structural existence that, that you're in. And so as you see any particularistic election move in that direction, you know, I, I don't think we should always be surprised. So while all these things we're talking about are important, uh, you know, as a political scientist, I can't help but say, but remember, the big predictor here is it's an out of, you know, non-presidential election where the party in power is president, Brings down the party. That's what happens every time. So as you move in that direction, I think, you know, you shouldn't be surprised uh, in in some ways as a listener or, you know, in kind of response can, you know. But additionally, we were talking about polls. And this is something I've been actually just I I have been tweeting. I don't do this often, but I've been tweeting out at, uh, in this case, local Oklahoma uh, uh, pollsters as they've been talking about Hoffmeister and, and Stitt. And, and, and this one always bugs me, right? So as a stat, I, I do stats, right? And, and so they'll be like, well, and today, you know, uh, stit is up by one point. But now today, joy is up by two points. And but the margin of error is 3.5 percentage points. So I just want to get this out of my system for listeners. Remember that if you have a difference that is smaller than the margin of error, what you have is a tie. Right? You don't know anything. You cannot say anything. You can't say, well, it's a 1% difference. No, because until you get a unit bigger than the margin of error, you actually can't yet say anything about it. So, I mean, you're saying something, but you're just saying it's tied. So, anything inside of that uh, is a tie. So, for everybody in Oklahoma who keeps thinking that we've had, you know, lead changes every week for the last four weeks, and I'm looking at you, all my local media friends, you're wrong. Uh, instead, we've had consistency, we've had ties. Uh, for four weeks. Don't get locked into that horse race narrative that you'll oftentimes see from uh, local media who wouldn't know how to add two plus two uh, if it came to statistics. So I just wanted to start there. So anyway, but now moving forward to that can kind of give us a base level for talking about predictions, right? If you take a look at 538, they are forecasting a 79 and 100 percent or a 79 and 100 chance for Republicans to take control of the House and a 21 in 100 for Dems. Meanwhile, in the Senate, it's a whole heck of a lot closer, 59 in 100 for Dems, 41 in 100 for uh, Republicans. Now, if Republicans, of course, claim either chamber, this is going to be kind of the, the end of the road for the Biden administration for doing things. And it's going to either have to negotiate, which is probably unlikely under the current circumstances, like unlike with Clinton. Or what I think is more likely and deeply unfortunate, which is resort to additional unilateral actions so that they can continue to claim that they're doing things. But So what do you think about those chances? I, I tend to think that uh, 538 is actually, based on their methodology, underestimating uh, Republicans' likelihood for taking the Senate by a little bit. Uh, but that still puts it close one way or the other. So, so what are your predictions now for November more explicitly?
1: I mean on, on 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 the on the election or on what would happen if the republicans got one of the
0: houses no no no. so on the election itself so what you know who who wins house who wins senate yeah
1: yeah i you know it's i was very confident before that the dems would keep the senate i'm glad that uh 538 thinks they're most likely still to keep the senate even as even as their leads are are, are weakening um i think that still happens because i i think to me you have to look at the individual races and i think um I do think Pennsylvania, you know, it's extremely unfortunate that Fetterman had this stroke and it's been costing him. But I I there's never been any polls ever where he wasn't out ahead. His lead isn't as big as it was. But I I think the Dems have a pickup in Pennsylvania. And that that gives them one state to lose, you know, even to keep their current uh 50-50 majority. Yeah. Which which is a majority if you've got the vice presidency. Um, you know, so they could lose one and still keep that. And I think there are a few that are, that are at risk of losing, but I don't think – I think in every one of those close races, you know, there's a chance that the Dem incumbent will lose, but um, probably the Dem incumbent will hang on. And, and even if they lose one of them, they still have the majority. So I, I don't really see them losing two. You know, it's, it's possible they, they could lose their current seat in Nevada. It's possible they could lose their current seat in Georgia. Um, but I, I think, you know, I don't think they'll lose both. And uh, um, so I, I do think the Dems keep the Senate. The House has always been tougher. And, you know, we've both always said that, that um, there has been a fresh round of gerrymandering. The the Dems would have to actually win the popular vote by almost four percent to keep their majority. Um, there's a lot of scenarios where um, and I'm, I'm actually confident that the Dems will get more votes, That that more Americans will cast a vote. For Democratic candidates in the House of Representatives than for Republican candidates in the in the House of Representatives, but that alone isn't going to be enough to um to to keep the majority. It's gonna it's gonna have to be you know that the votes are cast in the right places and that they add up to almost four percent margin of victory. Um, and I I don't know you know so I, I yeah I think I think I would probably go with the five thirty eight prediction and say that the Dems wind up with fifty or fifty one in the Senate and. The dems probably don't keep the
0: house although i think it'll be very close okay so now ken i'm going to do you know we, we we're kind of actually running long for a politics guys yeah, episode yeah, yeah, yeah so here's what i'm going to do because i want to get everything in that i mentioned we're going to do a two-in-one kind of lightning round supreme court <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or court things right so we're going to yeah, do yeah. kind of two cases here and then we're going to finish up the show one is, is on Thursday, the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals denied Lindsey Graham a claim of immunity to block a subpoena from the Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, arguing, that, uh, as he was, that a sitting senator should be shielded from such investigations. The court wrote, quote, Senator Graham has failed to demonstrate that this approach will violate his rights under the speech and debate clauses. The order goes on to say, uh, referring to the constitutional provision that protects lawmakers from being questioned about their legislation of activity, something we're going to be talking about in bonus shows. Uh, As a matter of fact, the last uh, month, the district court had uh, had ruled oppositely, arguing that they could not question some portions of it, but other parts were open to it. So it depended on if he was having legislative fact-finding or not. Uh, Thus, according to the six-page order, quote, we thus find it unlikely that questions about them would violate the speech and debate clause, end quote. So we've got that from the 11th Circuit. Meanwhile. Amy Barrett uh, denied also on Thursday uh, the expedited emergency plea to block the Biden administration loan debt cancellation program. The application had been filed by Wisconsin taxpayers' groups on Wednesday, and although this is not a case on the merit, argued that in uh, that there was no uh, uh, grounds for the emergency order. okay, so Ken lightning round, your thoughts on these two uh, 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 dis well one decision slash one procedural motion decision.
1: Yeah. Do you want me to just do one at a time so you can respond or you want me to just go right through both of them? You go right through both of them. You're, you're the expert okay. on this. Okay. Yeah. So first the the thing with Lindsey Graham. So the the speech or debate clause of Article 1, Section 6 of the U.S. Constitution says that members of Congress cannot be questioned in any other place in connection with any speech or debate that they've made in the Congress. Um, Now, now clearly, Lindsey Graham didn't make any speech or debate in the Congress that he's being questioned about. He's being questioned about a phone call that he made to the Georgia secretary of state. But um, the Supreme Court has expanded the meaning of the word speech or debate beyond just literal speeches and literal debates. It it includes all um, legislative acts that are committed Within a scope of a legislator's employment as a legislator, so things like drafting bills or, or voting on bills or conducting committee hearings or things like that are included in the Im- immunity that legislators have. Um, and when so the idea that they can't be questioned in any other place means essentially that they can't be um, held li- liable civilly or criminally, and, and they can't be um, subpoenaed, which is what what uh, Graham is arguing now. That does only apply to legislative acts committed within the scope of their legislative duties. So Graham had been trying to argue that when he called the secretary of state of Georgia to try to um, get him to throw out votes, that that really what Graham was doing was he was making that call so that he could investigate uh, uh, issues that that, that Congress might then need to legislate about. So he claimed that this was uh, connected to a legislative act. Um, That would have been an expansion of of the doctrine, Um, although although congressional committee investigations probably are covered by speech or debate clause immunity. um, The idea that any legislator's communications with anyone could be um, covered by the speech or debate clause immunity simply if the legislator says those magic words, well, I made this communication because I was trying to decide whether I wanted to introduce a bill. Um, that, that would really extend it to an absolute immunity. And, and the, the no court has ever done that. There are many cases, including in the U.S. Supreme Court, where um, legislators are able to be held liable for things that they did or said. Um, including cases involving legislators taking bribes or or legislators um, uh, defaming uh, people during their campaign events and things like that. there's a lot of cases like that where the court has said those things are not actually part of your legislative duties. You don't get the speech or debate clause immunity. And I think the Eleventh Circuit holding correctly found that there's just nothing about uh, Graham's call to the Georgia Secretary of State, which he had hoped to keep secret. Um, which would in any way be part of uh his work as a senator. So is that is that was that a brief and concise? No, that was beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So what yeah, are your okay. thoughts on Amy yeah. Barrett's
0: uh, decision?
1: Yeah. So this was another one where um the, the 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 Supreme Court um has erected a lot of doctrines that are called justiciability doctrines which are um ways of of saying that the the court lacks jurisdiction to hear certain kinds of cases even if those cases would be meritorious under the law. And one of the big um, justiciability doctrines that the court has had for about 50 years, although this doctrine did not exist until the 1960s. It's not an ancient doctrine or anything. But beginning in the 1960s, uh, the court um, started interpreting a, a clause of the Constitution. There's a clause in Article 3, Section 2, that talks about what the jurisdiction of the federal courts is. And it lists nine categories of cases or controversies. There's nine types of cases or controversies that courts can hear. You know, cases brought under federal law or cases brought between citizens of two different states or cases in admiralty, which means cases at sea. And I'm not gonna go through the whole list, but there's nine. And what the courts started saying in the, um, in the 1960s is, well, even if a plaintiff files a lawsuit uh, against a defendant and it looks like it's it's a case or controversy. There's a case filed and it looks like it's a federal question case because there's an issue of federal law cited in the complaint. Um, and, and so it looks like it might fit within that case or controversy requirement and be something that the courts would have jurisdiction over. Um, the, the doctrine of standing says it's not a real case or controversy unless the plaintiff has actually personally suffered A particularized injury, in fact. So there has to be a real injury that's been suffered by the plaintiff, and it also has to be an injury that hasn't been suffered by everyone else in the country. Um, And so that became the issue in this case. You've got uh, some individual in Indiana who files a lawsuit and says, "Um, I I don't think President Biden had legal authority to forgive all the student debts, and that's going to have to be paid for out of the general revenues, and I'm a taxpayer, so I'm injured by that. Um now the court's standing doctrine, again, going back about 50 years, ha- has been fairly clear on the idea that um the fact that someone is a taxpayer and that they think that the government is going to misspend their money um is not a particularized injury in fact. Even if it might be an injury, it's not a particularized injury in fact because it's shared by every other taxpayer. So so the court has had a pretty um high bar against taxpayer standing. And it used to have a few exceptions to that bar. But in recent years, really, very recent years, really, it's even eliminated the last of those exceptions. so under under the court's current doctrine, taxpayers simply don't have standing to bring cases. now in the in the um, in, in the Indiana case, the plaintiff said, you know, I, I know that there's a rule against taxpayer standing, and I know that that rule bars me from bringing this case, but I'm bringing this case anyhow because I'm actually asking the court to reconsider that rule and to relax its rule against taxpayer standing. So here, Justice Barrett, just simply because she's from Indiana and she's the circuit justice for the Seventh Circuit, which includes Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin, um, she has to make the decision whether to simply deny and dismiss this petition or whether to forward it to the whole court and let the court decide if it wants to make a change in, in in the law of standing. And she did decide Well, here we have a petitioner who even the petitioner himself agrees he doesn't have standing under current law, that that this case has to be dismissed unless we apply current law, unless we change the current law. And she says, you know what, I don't think we need to change the current law right now. So I'm dismissing the petition. So that's essentially what happened. One interesting thing about that approach is that um, it's very likely that if the court sticks to that approach and doesn't make any changes in standing law, that no one will ever be able to challenge uh, President Biden's um, uh, debt forgiveness order, because um, it seems hard to see how anyone is going to be injured by that. There were a few claims that I think are, did not pan out. Somebody was claiming that because his state will tax uh, the, the uh, debt forgiveness, that he'll be injured by having to pay state income taxes on the debt forgiveness. Uh, but the government responded that anyone's allowed to opt out of the debt forgiveness so nobody's injured that way it's just they can just opt out and and the courts have accepted that argument and uh, there was some thought that some of the financial institutions that get paid commissions to administer student loans um, might might be injured because say they're paid a, a dime to process every monthly payment and now with all this debt forgiveness there's not going to be as many monthly payments you know that they might be injured by that but you um, but I think the Education Department is actually paying them those dimes anyhow, so they're not injured by that. So it, it, we could wind up moving towards a situation um, where there's no no nobody can challenge this. And there's other constitutional provisions where that has been the case. For instance, there's a requirement in the Constitution that the budget be published um, every time Congress passes a budget and and for for many years, uh, they've kept big black parts of the intelligence uh, budget uh, unpublished, and there've been a number of lawsuits against that, and I think it's plainly an unconstitutional uh, uh, um, decision to not publish parts of the the budget when there's a clear requirement in the Constitution that the budget has to be published. but um, the the court has continuously found that there's nobody has standing to bring that claim, and therefore the court cannot adjudicate that claim so this this might be you know something that falls into that bucket.
0: Well, the only thing I'll add, just is just a minor clarification: the uh, the application was actually filed in Wisconsin. Taxpayers, not in oh, Wisconsin. I'm yeah, sorry, not a big deal. Right, yeah. but I, just wanna, I was yeah. just going to help out there. Well, uh, yeah, thank, thank you, you for the lightning round, Ken. You got through those quick. I appreciate it because that's all we've got for this week's show. Uh, if you're not already a supporter of the politics, guys, we hope you'll consider becoming one. Without you, we can't keep the podcast going. And the cool thing is, when you become a supporter, you get all kind of cool stuff. Like ad free versions of this show, as well as our supporter exclusive midweek show, where we break away from the constraints of the news cycle and discuss things. In our case, Ken and I are tackling the Constitution by popular request, and so. Uh, This upcoming uh, bonus show, we're going to be talking about the preamble and Article 1. Next week, we're going to get deeper into Article 1. We just got through Sections uh, uh, 1, 2, and 3 for the upcoming. We're going to go for that. It's, It's a ton of fun. I'm really excited about this, and I hope you'll join us as we explore the U.S. Constitution. But to do that, you've got to become a supporter. Supporters can also join our very active Politics Guys Discord group. And there's even Politics Guys gear and other kinds of cool benefits at different levels. If you want to check it all out, just head to patreon.com slash politicsguys. If you'd like to support us on Venmo, we're at Politics Guys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of our support links, they're easy to click right there in the show notes or as well at politicsguys.com slash support. If you'd like to get our midweek show, but you're not in a position to financially support the podcast right now, we get that. I get that. I got three kiddos. Just email Mike at politicsguys.com and we can get you set up. Whether you're a supporter or not, don't forget that you can subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast app you use. We'd love to be number one in politics, and that's the only way it's going to happen. So please click those buttons. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, or anything else you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You'll find all of this fun stuff right there in the show notes. The wonderful executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Morono, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. I hope you'll join us then. Ken?